we're picking up in our series on the doctrines of grace. And we're not going to backtrack, even though it's been quite a while uh, since we've met, but we're going to try and pick up where we left off, because I think we left off at a pretty natural uh, uh, breaking spot. So we, we were talking um, before the Christmas holiday time, we were talking about the different views of the atonement. So we're still on the L of the TULIP acronym, Limited Atonement, and probably one of the um, more controversial, let's say, aspects of Reformed theology um, that, that many people struggle with. It seems to go against our human nature as to how we want things. So we're spending time uh, in this to, to unpack a, a lot of it and, and bring us to a better understanding of it, um, if not a deeper understanding of it. So, when we left off, we were talking about the three different um, views of, of atonement and what atonement is intended for, what our holy God determined that atonement would achieve. And there's, there's three things. Potential atonement. Actual atonement. And another form of actual atonement. So, between these two, this has to do, this, we have the actual atonement of the elect. This actual atonement is the actual atonement of everybody. We determine from scripture that one of these is not biblical. And does anyone remember which one is not biblical? Which one did we immediately decide we can do away with and we can narrow down our choice to just two? Caleb. Uh, potential. Number one potential. So number one potential is, is actually orthodox. Um, it's not reformed theology. This is what we call Arminianism. Arminianism, even though it's not what we see the Bible as holding to, is an orthodox belief in atonement. It's not, in other words, it's not heretical. It's not heterodoxy. You're not outside of, the, of um, a true Christian religion if you hold to Arminianism, as many of our, our brothers in Christ do. So... When we talk about the elect, so we're going we're to 
kind of work at each of these and then figure out, because someone already gave the answer, but I want everybody to understand. So this, when we talk about the elect, that's Reformed theology. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Or some people use the term Calvinism. We can interchange them. Or Charles Spurgeon, he just says, this is biblical. As do, I would say, very many of the great reformed preachers, pastors, and theologians would say this is biblical. Because these are, these are men who've examined God's revelation in the scripture, wanting, seriously wanting to know what God is telling us. And so these are not men that went in with a preconceived notion as to what they want the Bible to say. Many of them, if you read the writings, will tell you in their writings that what they found was not what they wanted to find, but they could not get away from what God was saying. So Spurgeon, my point is Spurgeon isn't the only one that says this is biblical. So actual applying to all, meaning all people, regardless of how they live their life, regardless of their view of God, their view of Jesus Christ, are in the end saved. That's called universalism. So these are the three views we were talking about. And as many of you said when I asked the question, which one have we determined is not biblical, I heard many of you or a few of you say universalism is not biblical. That's true. But what's interesting and what we must recognize is this is the view that most of the unchurched have. This is also the view, unfortunately, that many who are in the churches have because it, I don't know, maybe it makes people feel good. We've all read things or heard things or been at funerals for people who have died, who have exhibited no interest in the things of God through their life, that maybe probably never picked up a Bible, certainly didn't hold to any biblical worldview invariably they are said by many to be in heaven. They're in a better place. They're now an angel looking down on us and helping us in our life. Things of that nature that, that are not biblical. But this is, the, this is the, the sinful desire of us humans to be granted salvation um, just carte blanche with 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 nothing, no strings attached, let's say. Now, of course, maybe that's an unfortunate, hang on just a second, Linda. Maybe that's an unfortunate turn of phrase. I shouldn't have used it because when we talk about the elect, there's no strings attached, right? It's not like we do something to make ourselves elect by God. Yes, Linda. I was just thinking, it seems like there's a lot of people that kind of, kind of fall in the third category, but not to the extreme. Like they'll say that 
pretty much everyone goes to heaven except for the really, really evil people. You know, we know that Stalin and Hitler aren't there. So, okay, so then who gets to decide when you cross that line into, you know, you, you are too bad to... You know. It's kind of a vague line, isn't it? So it's like, um, if you're responsible for killing millions, then you're not going to go to heaven. One or two, uh, we don't know. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That, right. And it seems to go along with the idea of who our culture at large views as evil from a cultural perspective, not from God's perspective. So um, we have a difficult time in our day and age as as saying someone is evil or someone is, and like Linda's pointed, pointed out, and it's a very good illustration, evil is reserved for a certain category that most people are not going to be into. It's, they're not going to be placed in that category because what? People will say, well, you know, they're, they're, they intended good. Their heart was good. God knew their heart. I used to have this argument with a friend of mine we would, at, a, at a men's um, Bible study breakfast, and he would talk about all of his relatives back in England who were just total God-rejectors, much less Christ-rejectors. And he would say, but God knows their hearts, and they're good people. And I would say, well, Danny, that's the problem, is God knows our hearts. You know? And he knows that even though we act in a good way, even though we act morally, even though we act like, I can't remember, the who is the real popular uh, self-help guru? Stephen Covey. Stephen Covey would say, you know, we had to have a moral compass, which is true. You know, we should have a moral compass, but our moral compass is based on what God reveals to us in the Bible. It's not revealed, on, revealed to us by our culture. If, if, if our culture set our moral compass, could you imagine being on a sailing ship and trying to use that compass to get someplace, to get around the world? You'd be all over the place because one day east is north and west is south and then it switches the following day. So now that I've gotten on that sidetrack, we'll try and get... So we're going to take out, we're going to remove universalism. Bible clearly teaches that is not so. There's nothing wrong, and in fact, there's something kind of merciful in us thinking it would be, it would be wonderful if everybody could be saved. Athanasius, an early church father, talked about that. He's labeled, I think I've mentioned this. So uh, excuse me for repeating it. If you remember it, if you don't remember it, I'm glad I'm repeating it. But Athanasius has been accused in modern uh, uh, scholarly work as being a universalist. But when you read Athanasius, what he says is that I desire all to be saved, but the Bible does not teach that. There's nothing wrong with desiring all to be saved. That's why we pray for those. We pray for those who hate us. We pray for those who are opposed to us. We pray, as we're instructed, for our government leaders, many of whom do not seem to care much for the Christian faith, who seem to be opposed to it. But yet we pray for them 
in a positive manner because our hope is that they will be saved. We remember what we were like, right? And people prayed for us, and we were transformed by God and became his people. He loved us first. So how do we determine between these two? That's, that's kind of the, uh, the next thing that I want to deal with. And <clears throat> I want to try and break it down, hopefully, in a way that um, makes sense and is kind of easy for you to see. And the way I want to do this, initially, anyway, is to talk about the terms that are used to describe atonement in the Bible, and what those terms are, what those terms mean, and what we can glean from those terms, what they tell us, what it helps us to understand. So the first word that I want to talk about is redemption. Redemption is a, basically, in in the original languages, in, in the ancient Near East, in the Greek, it refers to uh, buying something back. You know, like a, there's a transaction going on. Frequently, this is used in that time and in that culture for purchasing the freedom of a slave. Now, understand, and I know many of you do, that slavery in the Bible is not the slavery that we learned about in history class uh, about the United States and the, what the Civil War was all about, that sort of thing. That's chattel chattel slavery. This was not chattel slavery in the ancient Near East. These, these slaves were either people that had sold themselves into slavery because they were in debt. It was a way to escape your debt um, and work off your debt. You'd get the money, you know, so you'd, you'd, or you'd sell your children into slavery. Horrible to think of, but it was very common. You would be given money to, and you would pay off the debtors um, and then you would work. Uh, for a certain number of years. Someone could buy you. They could buy your, your freedom. Not, not necessarily purchase you as a slave, but, but pay your owner for your freedom, and you would be set free. The other case uh, was primarily prisoners of war. People taken prisoners in conflict, um, if were uh, the civilians anyway, were enslaved. And it was a way of subjugating or conquering um, uh, people. So this term redemption is used many times in connection with Jesus's death for us. And we're going to, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to use, look at scripture where it's used. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. Okay, I'm going to read. Please follow along. So Simon Peter writes to the church, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Okay, I'm going to, let me break in there. So have in your mind the idea that you were a slave, that you, you had to sell yourself into slavery and you've been purchased, you've been ransomed, but not with perishable things. So in a, in a material sense, if this was happening, 
your uh, um, kinsman redeemer, to use a biblical term, would be paying silver or gold for your freedom, right? But Simon Peter is saying, no, it's not silver or gold. So it's not material. He's not talking about a material redemption. He's talking about a spiritual redemption, obviously, here. Going on. Verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So let's make note of this. We've got 1 Peter... 1, 18, 19, talks about ransomed. The Greek here, not that that's important, but there's a reason why I'm putting it, because we're going to compare it to other Greek terms. Lytro, set free, Rescued, redeemed. This is what Peter is talking about when he talks about being ransomed with these spiritual things. Next, we want to look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Galatians 3, 13. Here Paul tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So here we have another term. Redeemed. The Greek agorazo, meaning by or purchased. The last scripture verse I want us to look at to understand this idea of redemption is from Revelation chapter 5, second half of verse 9. This will be Revelation 5, 9b. Which reads, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Ransomed. I'm using the ESV. That's my official Bible translation. So if you're using a different translation and it says something slightly different, um, that's why. So, ransomed here, the underlying Greek, agorazo. 
buy or purchase. Here's my point. Ransomed and redeemed are connected through the use of ransomed here. We've got these same Greek terms here translated as redeemed, agorazo translated in Revelation as ransomed, which point us up here to what Peter's saying. So what I want you to see is these, how these are, are connected through these terms, uh, through the underlying terms. Um, so that we don't think, well, there's, there's different ideas going on here. <clears throat> so this idea of redemption, being redeemed, being ransomed. What kind of redemption would the death of Christ be if it only made redemption possible, potential, not actual? If we think about this, if that was the case, then some of those from whom, for whom Jesus died, for whom he purchased with his life blood, are still in bondage. It was not effective for all of those for whom he died based on Arminianism. So then, I, what, I, what I hope that shows you, then if, that, if, we, if that's what we believe, then it's strictly a matter of human doing to, uh, to, to be saved, that we, that we have to do something. So if we don't make the right choice, Maybe we didn't pay attention in church when the pastor was, was preaching. Maybe, maybe the preaching was boring and our, and our mind drifted. Uh, maybe the pastor being human, maybe he was just ineffectual in his delivery. Not all of us are, are really you know, stellar, stellar, world famous uh, public speakers. <clears throat> if any of those are the case, then if Christ's sacrifice, if his, if his act of redemption and ransom is only potential, then any of those things can undo Christ's attempt to ransom or redeem you. That is a very troubling thought. So let me illustrate this if I can. And this is not my illustration. I borrow it, and I don't remember who I borrow it from, so I cannot give proper credit, but I didn't come up with it. It's a little bit too clever, I think, for me to come up with. But imagine <clears throat> you're at home, and the phone rings. And it, uh, it's your wife's brother-in-law calling. The police have arrested him. He's in jail. And he's begging you to come and bail him out. You know your brother-in-law. I'm speaking to the men. And you know he's not worth the bail money. It's better for him to stay in the jail. But your wife loves her brother as she should. And she wants you to go bail him out. Well, you're a smart guy, so you do what your wife wants you to do. And you go and bail out your brother-in-law. You come back. And your wife, of course, is worried about her brother. Because a jail's not a good place to be. You come back and she says, well, where's my brother? Did you bail him out? And you say, yes, I, I bailed him out. 
Well, where is he? I said, well, I don't know. I, I, I paid for his release. It's up to him if he leaves, if he leaves the jail. But you know, <laughs> but you know your brother, so who knows? That would not be redeeming, ransoming your, your brother-in-law from jail, would it? He's still in jail. It's up to him to accept that. Now, of course, um, th th like most illustrations, analogies, we're really pushing the boundary here because this is, this is comical, isn't it? I mean, obviously, the guy wants out of jail. He's going to get out of jail. But I hope you see um, the point that's being made there. The price of redemption had been paid, but a potential redemption of your brother-in-law or us in, a, in the way of salvation really is no redemption at all. It violates the plain meaning of the term. And sometimes we just need to look at the plain meaning of the term. And when I started to learn about Reformed theology before I knew what Reformed theology was, when I was a young man, newly Christian, in a church that... God bless them, really emphasized reading the Bible. I read the Bible, and I started to see these things based on the plain language of the text, what God had inspired to be written and what it said. And I noticed that when it came to atonement and salvation, it wasn't exactly what my pastors were saying because they had certain exercises that you had to go through to get to you know, um, Christ's death on the cross only being potential and, and not actual. And it all had to do with our sovereign will, that God loves us so much and he's a gentleman, he would not make us do something we don't want to do. But I read the Bible and it's like, well, but God changes us. He's cha he changes us to want him to want to do these things. He's not forcing me to do anything, but it's very clearly pointing me towards what turned out to be Reformed theology once I learned a little bit more. Yes, Chris. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we read about God not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In fact, in another place, he commands all men to be saved. So, how do we reconcile that with what we're talking about? Is that just applying to the elect, or is it favor? That's a very good question, and I'll give you a short answer, but, but I want everyone to know we're going to expand on this later, that we are going to address what we might say are difficult verses, those that seem to refute Reformed theology and support Arminian theology. The answer in that lies with perhaps a question, but I'll answer the question. Does all always mean all? No, it does not always mean all. We have to understand the context of what's being said, the verses surrounding it, the book in which it's written, the intention of the author, and who it, I'll be right with you, Doug, and who it's being written to, the point of it. What I found, and I'm not saying that this is true here, but something to consider is that many people, including a lot of Christians, do not realize that these letters are written to the church. It's written to believers. They're not written to the world at large. They're not written, in other words, as evangelistic 
um, uh, messages to try and convert people, written to people that are Christians to strengthen their faith, to uh, help them uh, refute and not fall into heresies that are going in the church. So that's the context that it's being written. It's not just, you know, some fellow that uh, thinks, I want to learn about Christianity, and he's out in the, the plains of Armenia someplace and gets a Bible and looks at it and says, oh, this applies to me. No, it's, you, that's not the context in which it's written. But we're going to go into that uh, in more depth, and we're going to talk about other um, uh, verses like that. Doug, did you have something to add to that? I just wanted to add to that. You're absolutely right. In, in Thank the you. context that, that Timothy is saying, and I'll read the entire passage in its context, is first of all, then, I, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and that it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved in did you come to the knowledge of the truth? He's talking about classes of people. He's, he's not talking about, it's not a, a overall, he, you know, he, he doesn't, he's not talking about every single person, but he's talking about people of rich status, poor status. Remember, the Christians at this time. Thank, thank, you, thank you, Doug. Sorry. Let's, let's. Sorry. <laughs> I could scratch an entire lesson if I let you go on. I encourage questions. Comments are okay. I don't mind comments. Keep them short, please. Because I got certain things I want to try and cover. And like I said, we're going to cover this uh, in depth in the manner that uh, Doug was there. Okay. Um, let me see where I was here. Okay, our next term. <clears throat> yeah, we're doing good time-wise. Let me get rid of these. Our next term is propitiation. Now, that's a great term. It's one that, thankfully, we hear here from the pulpit in many churches, I shouldn't say many, some, because I, I, can't, I can't categorize every church. But there are churches where you're not going to hear that word. And I'll explain why. Okay, propitiation. This is a religious term, not a commercial term like the redemption ransom that we dealt with. It deals with specifically the wrath of God. This is why you're not going to hear it in some churches. And if you have a background outside of Reformed uh, um, churches, um, you, you may have, this may be new to you, 
In fact, in a lot of churches, though, if anyone was to talk about the wrath of God, that would be entirely new. Um, <clears throat> there's a, there was a very good theologian by the name of Leon Morris, and he had to say this about propitiation. <clears throat> he wrote several works on uh, what Christ did on the cross. And that was, he was a New Testament scholar, and that was one of the things that he uh, focused on. He was an Australian. So there's good stuff sometimes comes out of Australia. He says that propitiation is fully meeting and putting away God's wrath. Meets God's wrath head on and it puts it away from us. It deals with it. <clears throat> and Morris explains that some, some translations of the Bible replace the term propitiation with other words like expiate or even atonement because you can use expiate, you can use atonement and kind of sidestep the wrath of God idea. Propitiation cannot. If without, it's meaningless without the idea of wrath being involved in it. That's why I say some places, you know, you're not going to hear it. There are people that, that really actively dislike that theological term because it presupposes God's wrath against sin. God's wrath is a serious thing. And, and really, you know, if you're familiar with the Bible, I don't know how you can avoid it in your theology. But some people manage to do that by not being very familiar with their Bible. Um, <clears throat> It shows how another person can die to bear God's wrath in the guilty person's place. Please turn to Romans 3, verses 23 through 25. <clears throat> Very well-known passage. Follow along as I read, please. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth, put forward as propitiation. What I want, to you, what I want you to see here is how Paul links redemption to propitiation. So Paul uses redemption and again the Greek will be useful to us because it will connect to something else. The translation of this Greek term is pretty straightforward. Redemption or a polytrosis in the Greek, in the Greek means redemption. So Christ Jesus is our means of redemption through whom God put forward as a propitiation. Oops. Ah. 
comes from a Greek term that is a noun that talks about a place where this occurs, and we will talk about that in a bit. So if one denies that Christ's death was an actual atonement, in other words, if you propose that Christ's death was just a potential atonement, and then the rest of the work's up to us, the Arminian idea. If you propose that, you must also deny that Christ's death was an actual propitiation. The two terms go together. We see this, how Paul is using them in Romans chapter 3 here. <clears throat> so this, this, this Greek term here, this place, we find this in, in Exodus 25.17, where um, Moses is instructed by God, you shall make a mercy seat uh, for the Ark of the Covenant. Um, in the Hebrew, it's a term related to atonement. And yet in the Greek, it's this, this term, elastrion. So it connects to atonement through the Old Testament. And of course, this is the place that the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for the unintentional sins of the people, right? In accordance with the laws that God has given, had given Moses. There was nothing else that the people had to do on the Day of Atonement. It was entirely completed by the Lord God. And the high priest carrying out his instructions with the blood of the Lamb. So what kind of propitiation would it be if Christ turned aside the wrath of God by his death, yet God nevertheless pours it out on the sinner? So imagine propitiation, God's wrath. Propitiation turns the wrath away. But if we think that, that atonement is only potential, then it's... How does, how, does, how does propitiation fit in here? How does it turn it away if it just possibly turns it away? This is what I argue to you. Christ cannot be a potential turning away of wrath. He cannot be a potential propitiation. They're, they're, they're uh, um, available to all people, right? That's, that's the other orthodox idea of atonement, potential for all people, or actual for unelect people. So there can't be a potential for all. There must be an actual for an elect. The propitiation has to actually occur. It has to mean what the word says it means. There's no potentiality at all in that. Um, and it cannot be uh, uh, propitiation for all people, because then we're back to universalism, right? And we know that that is not um, the case. If, if we imagine that uh, Christ accepting, turning away our wrath, and then we're only potentially saved, and we end up not being saved, and we end up being charged with the crime that Christ took the wrath for in United States 
criminal law, in our constitutional law, there's a term for this. Anybody? Double jeopardy. You've heard that, at least on the game show, when you know the, 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 the money value goes up on the questions. That's in our U.S. Constitution. It's in the, it's in the Fifth Amendment. The Supreme Court held that, that this um, prohibition on double jeopardy prohibits not only being tried twice for the same crime, but being punished twice for the same offense, which is usually referred to or legally referred to as multiple penalty. Multiple penalty is not allowed in human law, at least under our Constitution. So if a person's sentenced to prison, completes his sentence and is released, he's free. He can't be sent back to prison for the same crime. Likewise, if I get a parking ticket and you, out of the goodness of your heart, pay for my parking ticket, the court cannot require me to pay for that parking ticket also. That's a multiple penalty. We can apply that to atonement. And we can see how atonement works. God does not punish a sin twice. Therefore, if sin was actually punished by Christ, as Christ dying for it, then the sinner cannot be punished again for that crime. So who did Christ die for? That is the important thing to consider. If he died for all, then we're back to universalism. Because what I just said, the argument I just presented to you, wipes out the idea of Christ's death just being a potential salvation. It cannot be, because it's propitiation. Right? Otherwise... That high priest on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, when he went into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled the blood, he, had no, he would have no assurance that God would not strike him dead. Because they were told, by God, you come in here without this, you're going to die. You will die. It did not require the high priest to be perfect. It had nothing to do with his moral failures, because if he was a moral failure, that would be dealt with, um, and he would be banished or executed. It had to do with the unintentional crimes, things we do, and in this case, in the Old Testament case, um, violations of re religious ritual purity law, which there were so many, it was easy to, you, the Israelites tried to be obedient, but in these things, it was easy to be disobedient. You could have contact with a dead thing and not realize it and thus be unclean and be barred from entering the tabernacle, much less the Holy of Holies. Only universalism or particular redemption adhere to the biblical concept of propitiation. Arminianism cannot. Only universalism or particular redemption give full recognition to God's prevailing sovereignty. Arminianism does not. We've seen that universalism is incoherent with Scripture. We know that universalism is not true. The Bible not only does not teach universalism, it specifically opposes the concept of universalism. So that's why we took it off the board. So we're left with particular redemption as the means God has chosen for salvation. 
We have a couple more terms I want to look at, but we're at the really at, uh, at the end here where we should wrap up. Um, any final questions? Pastor Mike. More comment. You read Galatians 3.13, and it doesn't use propitiation, but we see the theme in there. Christ redeem us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Right. So we're dealing with the wrath of God right. in here, and did he or did he not become the curse? Very good point. Anything else? Linda R. What um, struck me, especially in the, the first Peter um, verse that you brought up, um, that it's the perfect, Christ was the perfect sacrifice. And also scripture in, I think, Old Testament and New Testament says, be ye perfect as I am, be holy as I am. We can't. So that potential, it just never works. It never would be sufficient. Good point. Um, I don't know if I could repeat it all. I don't know if you could hear it um, over here. I'll try and rephrase it a bit. Um, Linda's pointing out that uh, we are commanded by Scripture to be perfect. Christ commands us to be perfect as he is perfect, like the Father um, but that we cannot, it's, it's, and that's another issue um, that we don't have time for. Um, but th since we cannot be perfect, only Christ is the perfect sacrifice. It's just like in the Old Testament that, that, that foreshadows his sacrifice. Were imperfect lambs acceptable by God for sacrifice? No, no. You couldn't take in like, I, I, that lamb's no good, look, it's crippled. It's got three legs. It's not going to live long. We'll give this one to God. Who presented a sacrifice um, with that probable mindset that was rejected early on in the Bible? Cain. Yes, exactly. So that's, that's what Linda is, is talking about. A very good point. Brendan. Quickly, because we, uh, we're running out of time. Think about why would Christ die for a potentiality? I mean, it implies that we could do something. Why not just, he just comes, he teaches, and says, there you go. I'm going back to heaven. You're on your own. That's, that's a very good point. That's a, and I know you meant that question rhetorically. Um, I wish you would have made it earlier, because we could really talk a bit about this, but it's a very good point. It's like, and I hope you all heard what Brendan said. If not, he's saying, why would Christ, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the creator of all things, do something like this only for a potentiality? To walk away from his tomb, ascend to heaven, and, and say to the Father, I sure hope they take this deal. Because I think it's a pretty good deal. And the Father says, yes, I do, I do too. And the Holy Spirit says, yeah, I hope so too. I'll, I'll help out as much as I can. But you know, we're our gentlemen. We're not going to force anybody to do what they don't want to do. Well, thank you, Lord, for forcing me to do the thing that I ran from for years. And I know many of you, not that, not that he forced me. It's, that's not a good term. That we're transformed, right? We're made to want the things of God where before we rejected and we ran from it. Thank God for that. What a blessing. Okay, we're out of time. 
Thank you for your participation and your interest. It made, always makes it fun for me to teach um, when I know you guys uh, are getting into it and you're thinking. That's the main thing. Please join me in, in prayer and we'll break. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Father, we pray for our friends that have heard this message. Father, that they may understand it, that they may know that there's more to come, that it all focuses on your love for your people and your, your common grace to all of humankind. Father, bless the rest of the service this morning um, as we go on. May this day glorify you in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.